Welcome to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. I am Dr. John, the guide for your heroic journey towards greater health, success, and most importantly, happiness. And now, on with the show. Hey everybody, this is Dr. John back after a brief summer hiatus. And I gotta say, I am thrilled today to have with me Dr. James Branson. And Dr. James is a licensed psychologist and social worker with over 25 years of experience. He's the director of the Mindful Alliance Center and co-founder of the East Bay Mindfulness Center. He works as a clinical director, supervisor, organizational consultant, neuropsychologist, forensic psychologist, expert witness, and clinician. Holy crap. He utilizes a strategic solution-focused CBT and IFS approach to help individual clients and couples optimize their full potential to live, work, and love mindfully. And when Jim is not running his clinic and professional network or seeing clients, he is doing expert witness work in court or overseeing organizational consulting projects, training shrinks in other countries, or just laying about. But mostly his joy comes from being a husband and raising his two kids, watching him playing sports and playing the drums and singing a little bit. And I have to say that having worked with Jim professionally, I really I want you all to know that I am deeply in awe of his knowledge base, his caring, and perhaps most importantly, his integrity. He's one of those men you want your sons to grow up to be like. And the reason for this show today is that Jim's currently working on a book, and I think he's working on the second revisions, second set of revisions, which will be the topic of today's show, which is Finding Joy During the Plague and Other Not-So-Good Times, which is the working title. And you can find out more about Jim at theebmc.com wcminstitute.net and drbramson.com. And those links will be in the show notes. Jim, welcome. Thank you so much for coming aboard. How are you doing? Good. I'm, I, can I just retire now and uh, not do anything? <laughs> I love well, it sounds like so you burned much. it. <laughs> the intro is so great. I could just, you know, rest now and, and you know, stop. <laughs> but um, what, John, first of all, thank you for uh, letting me be on your podcast. And I'm really big fan of you and your work. And I've been uh, blowing you up lately, telling everybody about the podcast and about uh, the amazing skill set you have, just the person you are. And, um, you know, I know we talked about men having a hard time with compliments, but you're just going to have to deal with it. Oh, thank you. um, So thanks. Thanks for Now that that the mutual admiration society is (laughs) is coming to a close. um, And, and I, I mean, it's, it's really nice, though, because I do have a lot of love, a lot of admiration for you and the work you're doing and the way in which you do it. And I don't say that lightly or often to people. Yeah. Well, thank you. I'm glad you're not saying that to everybody. It would, I would feel like a cheap date. You know, I wouldn't want yeah. to. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I think it's kind of like being, we're like in Vietnam together. You know what I mean? We're, we're soldiers yeah. dealing with some heavy stuff. And uh, when you have a chance to talk about the, the fight you're in, the war you're in, you come very close to the people who uh, are in your bunker, you know? And uh, so, um, you know, we've had a chance to really uh, get real with each other and authentic about uh, our passion for the work we do, our craft, but also, you know, it's, uh, it takes a, it takes a, it takes a lot of support. We have to support each other as men, as yeah. colleagues. And so I really I'm sorry, appreciate did you say, that. did you say our crap or our craft? <laughs> they sound very similar. <laughs> Is that crap? Oh my gosh. <laughs> Sometimes no, it's just, it's it my hearing. Crap. I'm sometimes getting at that age. Maybe for me it's crap sometimes. <laughs> it's not always perfect, John. Sometimes I think this crap might be somebody else's crap, but you know. Right. 
Well, I, I definitely feel like we've been in a foxhole together recently. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I appreciate taking the bullets together with you. Yeah. Um, and, and having you to have my back as well. So let, let's get into the topic. Yes, um, sure. Because I'm, I'm fascinated with this one because it does smack of positive psychology. But, it does, it does. you know, we've been in, we've been dealing with COVID for two and a half, three years now. Right. Um, we know that depression and anxiety is rampant across the U.S. It, I think it's gone from like 11% of the population at any given moment to about 40%. Yes. at any given moment. And so a lot of people are struggling out there. A lot of people are finding difficulty in finding joy, finding happiness, finding contentment, finding even ways to relax, I would say. So let's get a little bit into sure. your area of expertise with this book. Yes. So there's a lot of things that inform me in this topic. Um, I've always been interested in like Victor Frankl. Let's start there. You know, Victor Frankl is a huge influence for me. And he, uh, when he was at Harvard, uh, he did something called the Purpose in Life Inventory, which really resonated with me. And then I started digging into his life, his work, and his struggle, you know, trying to deal with the Holocaust, which one could say that's a plague of sorts, right? And other people who had to really tap into their uh, inner strength and resiliency to overcome odds. And imagine being in the Holocaust, being in the camps, um, which would be worse than, you know, having to be forced to wear a mask in a supermarket, I think. Yeah, But some people might treat that as a Holocaust of sorts politically. But getting back to that idea, though, what, would it, what does it mean you know, to be facing your own demise? And how do you deal with that moment of truth where things seem dark and, and there's no exit out? There's no way out, it seems. How do you find your inner strength, resiliency? And for God's sake, how do you find joy right, in those really dark moments? And it's an extreme example, but if you look at extreme examples, we can learn about how to deal with uh, less extreme examples too. So what I understood about Viktor Frankl was that uh, he developed logotherapy, and he looked at this idea of um, having a sense of purpose and meaning can keep us alive and functional in the worst moments. So in the Holocaust, the people who were of service to other people lived longer. They were able to um, overcome the threat. Their immunity system was stronger. They were more resilient. And so in those moments, he tried to find a sense of meaning and purpose while in the camps trying to help other people out who are struggling worse than he was. And that gave him life. And then when he left you know, the camps and he went to Harvard and he developed logotherapy, he realized that um, dealing with things like death and dealing with things like purpose are really, really critical. And so when we deal with plagues, this idea of threats, you know, things are really upend our uh, central nervous system when our sympathetic nervous system is being rocked by things we can't control or change. Um, how do we hold that information? How do we hold that threat? What do we do? What are our choice points? And so then I started thinking more deeply about it. Um, so he said that, you know, we have to face, well, acceptance commitment therapy is, involves unmasking things and looking at accepting what is and not battling against it. So if we can accept what is and, and uh, really disentangle it and look at it, it becomes less threatening. If we can look at um, our sense of meaning and purpose, even when we're faced with hardship, that can help our resiliency. And if we can uh, hold positive psychology, the classic example, Seligman, you know, of course, was the one who founded that. But one of the classic experiments that I always stood out for me, like in Psychology 101, was this idea of the, the classic rat maze experiment where the rats can't get out. And then there's this learned helplessness experience because they either get shocked or 
tormented while they try to escape. And then once the shocks go away and there's a free way to escape, they still don't leave because they don't realize they can leave. They don't realize they have freedom now because they've been conditioned to be negative. They've been conditioned to only see the darkness, to only see the limits. They don't see the light. They don't see the joy. They don't see the can I pause you there for a second? Because yeah. this, there's a, so I, I spoke with Dan Tomasulo who wrote Learned Hopefulness. Yeah. And he's done work with Seligman. And what they found, they, they actually revised that learned helplessness piece because they found that learned helplessness isn't actually learned. What it what they believe now is that that helplessness is actually all our default state. Yeah. And and that makes sense if you think of us as infants, <laughs> that we're we're helpless in that state, that we have to actually learn to be um autonomous yeah 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 and i i think that um that makes a lot of sense to me john dr john you know that you'd want to be able to be autonomous and you know and i think we may forget that we may not realize that unless we uh we're taught it or we learn it or we, we see the possibilities in front of us and that's where a therapist can come in or hopefully the book might come in and the right now um you know, there, there's this guy named Glasser who did something about choice theory, you know, based on Adler's work, and he revised that, looked at choice theory. And so if you look at choices, like we can choose to learn to be autonomous, we can choose to focus on joy and light, we can choose to focus on limits and cognitive distortions and, you know, um, our own stuckness, you know, and not see creative possibilities. And so when we're so in the current times we're in, you know, what's extraordinary is that we've been, you know, we've been hit with uh, this idea of, you know, like they had the Spanish flu, right? Back in the Spanish flu, you know, it was spreading, the population died, or the bubonic plague, you know, before that, or the dark ages. We go to any time in history and look at what was going on for people. And there's a lot of hysteria. There's a lot of uh, fear. And, um, and a lot of people, some people believe in science. Some people dismissed it. You know, some people were curious, some people were incurious. So in the book, I emphasize the importance of uh, some of these things I'm mentioning, which is curiosity. Mm -hmm. That's huge. Uh, which is really key, right? If you want to be joyful or contented, you have to be curious about how do you do it under difficult circumstances? How do you, you know, you have to want to learn how to do that. It's not something that is a setting that you can just put in. You got to work for well, it. And even prior to that, I would say you can use curiosity to reduce anxiety or to allow anxiety to move. I like that metaphor. I think this is from Todd Cashton's book, Curious, where yeah. he's got, you know, you've got the anxious, the anxiety knob on the stereo, and you've also got this curiosity knob. And we're usually focused on that anxiety knob, which often gets locked at a 10 out of 10. And, you know, we don't realize that we can choose to move that curiosity dial which then allows the anxiety dial to move on its own and is more likely to get stuck or to more likely to get unstuck more quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. By just making the decision to be a more curious person. Yeah. And you're, you're emblematic of several things there. One is that there's a choice in that process. Mm -hmm. You know, one, there's a choice, which knob do you want to turn? You know, uh, there's a choice. Or do you want to be a knob? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. <laughs> or, do you want me, or, do you, or do you want somebody to turn your knobs around? You know, but I think, but I think, but I think that that's that's true. You know, and uh, exactly. And so this idea of, uh, you know, there's like there've been great things that have happened. Like when I look at my clients, you know, those who had 
a positive experience during COVID or had a positive experience during our last president, president's administration or had a, have had a positive experience, you know, uh, dealing with, you know, a, a divided country that's been almost on the brink of a civil war. The clients who are, um, who rise above all that, what are, what are they doing? How are they holding all, this experience, all these experiences? What can I possibly offer them? Yeah, I'm, I was curious about that myself. And because um, some people have had a really great experience uh, during COVID and during this plague, during this last two, three years. And let me ask you, John, like if you could think about what you think, just, you know, I'll, I'll try to hopefully elucidate some more. But, but if you could think about who, who do you think, what would be the difference between people who have had a positive, even joyful experience during this horrifically challenging time versus those who don't? How would you imagine uh, what, the, what are those differences for those? I, I think part of it's curiosity. Part of it, I think what I've seen is people that are more introverted have done better in this environment. I think people that enjoy their family have done better in this environment. I think people that have learned to get back to nature and really show appreciation for nature have done well in this environment. Yeah. Those are some of the key things you just said, you know, that a lot of people um, realize that the pace of life was too fast. Mm-hmm. That um, change in values, yeah, yeah, and connecting to core values for most people. When if you talk to somebody who's about to die, you know what matters to you right now. Well, it's going to be your family, your relationships, um, your legacy. I wish I'd spend more time at work. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I wish I. I wish I That's what I'm going to say on my deathbed. I wish. Damn I it! I should have worked more. Right time, you know. You know, but it. You know, it's it's right. You know, nobody. It's not about that, and. And so those are the things. And so during this time, those people who leaned into their family, leaned into their core values, took better care of their health, learned how to meditate, um, took on less, decided to be in nature more, decided to to pick pick up hobbies. You know, some people learn to play music again, to play chess. I'm speaking for myself a little bit here, but people like me, you know, or different than me, you know, picked up things, you know, to really, to really, um, that they would have not have picked up. You know, and um, and I think some people, you know, built a relationship stronger and um, had more time for self and more space. Some examples of that. Um, it's I think it's pretty hard to, in there. Yeah. Part, I mean, one of the things that it, it seems to me that we lose as adults, we lose our sense of playfulness and we lose sight of the um, really simple joys and pleasures that we knew back when we were like five, six, seven years old, like, you know, rolling down a grassy hill or making a mud pie or playing in the sandbox or going for a walk or riding a bike or going on a slip and slide. Like, you know, there's a lot of going for a hike in nature. A lot of these things I think we had back when we were younger. And then somewhere along the line, we get caught up in the idea of these adult pleasures smoking drinking sex yeah, drug yeah, talk and roll yeah. you know, all that stuff and i i love all those yeah, last that, three that, but you know yeah, those were, i had fun with them <laughs> but they, those are hedonistic yeah. pleasures and they only yeah. last as long as the pleasure itself lasts yeah yeah I, I think that you know i realize that's fleeting you know um I, you're you're on to a critical piece i call it being you know i'm not into drugs or whatever but you know or i still like rock and roll the other stuff you mentioned but but I'm not so into the drug part. But um, but I think that what I realized is that um, that people get adulterated, and there's an innocence that people have when they're younger. And Adler talked about one of the five core areas for psychological health: one being fun. You know, fun. He was the first person to say fun. 
joy, yeah. basically. That's essential. And the other thing he said was, I'm a Shaska for the idea of community. Community is really important. So having a sense of belonging, critical for joy and health. And then he talked about, and I know you and I have discussed this in other ways before, this idea of, um, you know, what Rogers might call positive self-regard, but he, you know, he looked at this idea of, um, <clears throat> you know, um, having positive self-regard, essentially, is what he looked at, you know. And, um, you know, those were, you know, among other things that he talked about. And freedom and autonomy has been mentioned, too, is another area, you know, having freedom. And when you don't feel free, and you can't be playful, and you don't have good self-worth, and you don't have a purpose, um, and you don't have time, and you don't have tenderness, you're probably not going to have a huge joy quotient, okay? And, um, and it's dynamic. It's not static. It requires constant uh, attention and constant uh, lever shifting because the world is so dynamic and changing all the time. And we're changing all the time. So it involves uh, mindfulness and being uh, a witness to ourselves and our surroundings and what's going on and become, becoming an active learner, an active agent for change in our lives. And so what I, what I get really inspired by is the whole life I've been inspired by this um, and still am. What keeps me going here, John, um, is reaching one's potential. You know? And so during, can we really work toward our potential when things around us are falling apart? When people are getting sick and ill, when people uh, have to wear masks, when people are arguing over politics, when people are getting divided, when people are, um, when there's higher rates of mass shootings, you know, when there's higher rates of, you know, lack of civility, you know, which is what's occurring around us. When, there, when yes. democracy is falling apart, as a lot of us believe that, how can we, you know, feel safe and um, on purpose during these times? And so in the book, what I get into are the how part, like how, what can you do? And I, and I teach different modalities and models of uh, some of the models of psychotherapy that I believe apply to these things about, so resiliency is a big piece, you know, joy is a big piece, um, self-leadership is a big piece. And I think that's self-compassion, huge, yeah. Yeah. Self-compassion is a, is a, is a really... Uh, key part i know that we uh, talked before about um you know this idea of shame it was interesting my wife listened to the podcast we did right and she loved it and it's oh the, it, and, and it's gotten great by because it was you not me i just sat back and let you be you you know but people listen to the podcast and we're just i got so much positive feedback on the podcast that you did um and my wife was pondering and she's so smart you know she's <laughs> she's pondering the question we asked about shame what role does it have, does it have any good purpose? And she, she reflected and goes, I, I can't think of one thing. And I go, what is it? I, I couldn't come up with it. She goes, well, it kind of regulates some people from being bad actors. So people might police themselves more. I think that was true more back when we were in tribes that, yeah. you know, we could rely on shame. And, and I think you could rely on guilt to do the same thing more effectively. Yeah. But maybe the really bad actors, but then there's some bad actors that don't feel any shame. That's right. Yeah, we yeah, and they're called sociopaths. <laughs> yeah, 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 but but yeah, but that's that's true. But anyway, I thought I'd throw that out there. But um, but the but I think that what gives joy is so unique to each of us, and and uh, there's not a uh, you know one recipe for joy. I like Thich Nhat Hanh really uh, to me nailed mm -hmm. it. We talked about 
the different elements of joy. And he talked about it in terms of love and in terms of the four elements of love. And, and he couldn't disconnect joy and love. And I think it's real hard to, and they're different ideas. You know, love is something we could probably spend two hours debating. What does love really mean? You know, is Leo Buscalia the expert? Was it Corinthians one thirteen? Well, know? I like uh, yeah Barbara Fredrickson's definition of love, which is someone that makes you feel all the variety of positive emotions to some extent simultaneously. Oh, that's great. And and I think there's more to it than that, but I think that's a pretty good start. That's a great. Uh, I'm going to steal that and use it as mine. You know, so who who is the reference for that? That's Barbara Fredrickson. So, you know, she's amazing. For other podcasts, people are writing down our book names and references, by the way. People are saying, yeah. I was writing down all these things, you know, you guys were talking. Um, I didn't know that one. Um, but I like, I like that. I also but think I have, I have a question like an orgasmic about... experience, too. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. I have a question yeah. for you about yeah. joy in the sense yeah. of, I think of joy, if you think of a one to 10 scale in terms yeah. of like intensity of happiness, I yeah. see joy as a nine or a 10 on that scale. Yeah. And I see content at like a six. Well, I guess if we're starting to get in the negative below five negative emotions. Um, but I think of contentment as a, a mild intensity happiness. I think of joy as a higher intensity happiness. Mm-hmm. And, and there's, there's cultural differences, I believe, between what we look for here in the West and what our expectations are culturally for happiness versus that in the East, like in Japan. And and I think, you know, it's, they're looking for a much more milder form of happiness, something like contentment. I think we are expecting and looking for something like joy, which to me is a little bit harder to sustain and a little bit harder to get to. It's going to be a more peak experience. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. So this is an interesting thing. I mean, one could argue that, um, you know, Woody Allen joke is you have to choose between misery and despair. I'll choose misery. Okay. <laughs> the, the difference being? Uh, well, there is a difference. You know, one is more of a permanent condition. Oh, Maybe okay. one is more temporal, you know. And um, contentment, you know, would probably be the choice of most people if you had to choose because it's more of a steady state. Um, and it's more of, um, there's more equilibrium in that. But then if you didn't have joy, you wouldn't have those peak experiences, right? Mm-hmm. So I think if you could vacillate in a non-manic way <laughs> between, you know. That's, that's um, the catch, non-manic. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, don't, I don't want to, you know, promote hypomania here as a solution to the play. <laughs> but if, you, if, there, if, there's this juxtap- if there's this space between contentment and joy, and you defaulted toward contentment, and you were able to have peak experiences around joy, and creating the conditions so that that's possible on a more consistent basis. One could argue you could deal with bad events, you know, not so good times. Absolutely. You know, in a more effective way. And you'd be easier to deal with as a human being. And the people around you would find you easier to deal with. They'd want to be in your foxhole. Because, well, and I like that. I like the simple theory that, you know, we've got two buckets of emotions in us. One's negative, one's positive. And, you know, obviously no emotion is negative. So right, this is right. a little bit of a misnomer, but right. I think people intuitively understand what I'm saying when I say that. And I think we normally overfocus on that bucket of negative emotions, anger, fear, shed, sadness, guilt, shame. Right. And we're not very good at recognizing that bucket of positive emotions. But if we can fill that up, my belief is that we have to empty it 
before we can start to fill up that bucket of negative emotions at times. But it also gives us enduring resources to help out other people, to your point. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that, you know, uh, you know, I think about a car analogy, for example, you know, it's, I, you know, I have a hybrid car and I have an electric car right now because, you know, I'm trying to be a good citizen, I guess, you know, um, and uh, or whatever you want to say. Um, but uh, but I, you know, I, I actually um, I like the, the idea of the electric car because, uh, you know, it's electric and I don't have to use gas and it saves me money. Right. But did I get range anxiety around that? Um, mm-hmm. You know, which is a, a problem. And then with a hybrid, I don't have to have range anxiety, but I'm not saving as much, you know, money because it's, you know, it's a hybrid. Even though the first 50 miles are free because it's plug-in hybrid. Here's the point. Um, I think that if you could look at this like uh, that, that you need all the emotions in order to function. In a way, we have to be a hybrid system, ideally. And, um, you know, we need, you know, we need all the, 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 what you might call negative feelings, but in the IFS model, we don't, which I find very helpful, you know, and I know you're an expert on this and you consulted on, I, I wouldn't say I'm an expert, but I'm a fan. No, no, but you are, you know, you're, no, but you're an expert on, you know, you worked on the on inside out, which dealt with emotions and, and a very deep, mm-hmm. I thought that was brilliant. That would be so deep psychologically, you know, I loved it. I, I, one of the things I'm thrilled about is it gives a whole generation of young people a, a vocabulary to understand what's going on internally, but yeah. also it normalizes what's going on internally for them. In my book, before I knew you, John, I talked about, you know, in one of my earlier drafts, and it's taken me a long time to, I did, I'm done the second draft and hopefully, you know, there won't be a third, you know, but and I'll be done and get this thing out. Um, but I think the, um, in one of the earlier iterations of it, I talked about Inside Out as a movie and, and compared and contrasted that with IFS and talked about how IFS Mm -hmm. and the movie are so simpatico and this idea that there are, you know, all feelings are welcome. Uh, We don't, we're not there to judge them. We're there to, to be informed by them. And I think if you want to deal with uh, hard times, you want to deal with um, tragedies and disasters and plagues and not so good times, you have to know how to hold all feelings in a way that doesn't dysregulate. Okay. And the way to, to do that is becoming a more, what I believe, becoming a self-leader or bodhisattva, you know, Christ-like if you're in a Christian or, you know, a good rabbi if you're a Jew, whatever, you know. The idea of being enlightened being, okay, a uh, wise person, wise heart, different names we give things. How can we tap into that self-leadership during these moments so that we're in charge of our own behaviors, thoughts, feelings, and reactions? And then our feelings, all of them, are welcome. And they don't have to be exiled. They don't have to be uh, judged. They don't have to be attacked. They don't have to be, a, we don't have to be fearful of them. But we're, we have courage and curiosity about what they offer us. And during plagues and difficult times, it's really more important than ever to be able to handle all the repertoire of our emotions and be able to, um, to emerge you know, as better self-leaders. And that's the challenge I throw out to my readers who will read this book. How can you not only get to baseline during difficult times, but how can you go beyond that? And really, um, like Victor Frankl did, how can you go beyond that and allow those difficult moments, experiences, and emotions to transform you as a human being and to come out of it more whole and holy? Yeah, and, and I absolutely agree with you. And I think I, that's why I believe that good emotional management skills are really the key or the foundation to a happy life. Because I... 
when we say happy life or you're, you're going to be joyful or you're going to be content more of the time, it's not that you're going to be content or happy or joyful all the time. You're going to have these other emotions that arise. And yeah. I think to learn that skill and, you know, I love the line from mindfulness. I think it's John Cabot's in allow whatever's arising to arise without yeah. judgment. Yes. <clears throat> that without judgment piece takes years, but yes. it's, it's critical because every man I've ever talked to there, our first strategy with emotions is suppress and deny. Exactly. I can't feel depressed. I, I, I'm not a pussy. I, you know, I yeah. can't feel, I can't feel panic attack. I can't feel, you know, anxious. I, I can't, you know, and, and I, I want to feel this me, anger. Call me pussy galore if you want to call me that, you know, I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, you know that's a James Bond character. By the way. Uh, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, but uh, you know, yeah. Can you be man enough? or person enough, human enough to human, not yeah. be caught up in that ego stuff about that, you know? And I think um, that's a big part of the work, you know, it takes a lot of effort to, you know, we talk about vulnerability, you and I have discussed that. I don't think you can be joyful if you don't tap into your own vulnerability and you don't have some level of self-acceptance yeah. and self-love and uh, not narcissistic self-love, but healthy self-love, right? And healthy acceptance. So, I mean, so it doesn't mean to you give yourself a pass at every stupid thing you do. Go ahead. I'm sorry. So to what extent do you, do you see embarrassment getting in the way of this? And, and I'm thinking for men, but this fascinates me because I think many of the men that I speak to are lousy at taking themselves lightly at being quick and easy to laugh and smile. And I think, you know, embarrassment is one of those things that just stacks up in the way. And we do so much to keep from being embarrassed. I, all I know is that when I walk within five feet of two teenagers, that they feel embarrassed sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and they used to like to hold my hand. They used to, you know, whatever, you know. Uh, but I think it's interesting how early that starts to take hold. Um, but I'm, I'm just, I'm going to sit with that idea about embarrassment. Um, interesting thing, I, I don't know if you had this experience. When I was a kid, you know, um, and I still feel like one sometimes. I, oh yeah, I talked about. It, I still, I still don't feel my age. You know, um, I look at. Um, but what I, what I do feel inside um, is young sometimes. And and I, I sometimes I want to tap into the more vulnerable time where I, I remember when I felt embarrassed before when I was young. And what I noticed was that the kids who were popular, you know, when I was in elementary school, you know, um, were the ones who could laugh at themselves. Uh-huh. I was I was just I thought it was so interesting. They were they would they totally were cool people teasing them. Sometimes they would tease themselves. You know, they were okay well, with anything that I, I was just had this, I just had this conversation with a client yesterday about, you know, look at the class clowns. And and I think there's a distinction between kind of cool, kind class clowns and then right. those that are a little bit more mean-spirited. But the ones that are more cool and kind. You know, what is it about them that allows them to be funny? What is it allow what is it about them that allows them to be popular or be liked by a lot of people? And, and I think a big part of it is they're comfortable being embarrassed. They're comfortable making fun of themselves, yeah. making a spectacle yeah. with themselves as the butt of the joke. Yeah. People gravitate towards that. Totally. Making, you know, be able to make a mistake and make fun of yourself. Like yeah. Letterman, I love Letterman, you know. And I went to a show in New York, you know. Um I remember one had this amazing weekend. I went to SNL and then I went to see Letterman and one weekend both live, you know, my, oh, that's a good uh, one. Yeah. I had a connection and we're all going to, but anyway, I wouldn't have gotten in otherwise, but I got in 
You have to answer some trivia question about the Letterman show, by the way, to get in. They ask you some really obscure thing. You know, you have to prove you actually watched the show. And I'm like, oh, wow. God, it's like, I haven't felt like this since I, my SATs, you know, so. Uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> high stakes. Yeah. I want to get into a good college, you know. I want to get into Letterman, you know. Thank God I got into good, good colleges. I got a Letterman, thank God. You know, but um, but my fear of embarrassment was there still. And, um, but I remember watching Letterman and it was amazing. He would make gaffes and mistakes. And that was like his best comedy. He was yeah. at his best when he would screw up. And the show would get screwed up. And he was in the middle of performing on live television. And things would go wrong. And he just took a bad moment and flipped it into this hilarious moment. And I don't think that was, you know. Uh, and so, I, you know, you, that's what I think is the ultimate thing is that um, it's about, when we break it down further, it's really about how much we care about what people think of us. And how much that can control our sense of joy and contentment. Like my son, it blows my mind because he mastered something. It took me forever to master, which is he doesn't give a shit about what people think of him. So much. Oh, such a huge skill. I go, how did you do that? <laughs> Teach me. <laughs> you know, like, I'm your student. I mean, I still, John, I still want you to like me. You know, I got to be honest. Yeah. You know, I do. I, I mean, I, I think you do, but you know, I, I do. Yeah, I do. Yeah. But that's bullshit. Why should I care so much about that? Right. I said, and so I just want to be me. If you like me as me, it's better. I don't want you to like yeah. me as me trying to please you, though. Okay, and and I, I want to be me liked, right? And so what I think it comes down to is when we're embarrassed, it's usually because how are people going to see us, perceive us? What's our image? What's our ego? You know, and ego is a death knell of joy and happiness. We're not yeah. going to, if we're so worried about managing our image and ego. We're not going to find contentment and joy, and we're not going to be resilient. We're not going to get through hard moments because we're so wrapped up in what people think about us and how they see us. And that's that's a purgatory, you know, I think. Yeah. What do you think about internal versus external validation as it relates to what others think about it? Because I think we we get wrapped up in looking for external validation. And, and I, I've kind of postulated that one of the jumps from, let's say, adolescence to manhood is transitioning from over-focusing on external validation to internal validation. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yes. That, you know, so the, you know, that idea of internal locus of control, external locus of control, validation from in or out. And I think, uh, you know, there, there's that great Daniel Siegel book, Parenting from the Inside Out. Mm. And I like, I always liked him. Um, in fact, I'm going to do a workshop uh, in uh, Portugal uh, next, uh, hopefully next uh, summer with a colleague of mine from Australia, who I've taught with many times. Um, and uh, we're going to do this, it ties in what you're talking about, but it ties into this idea of, um, you know, parenting ourselves from the inside out and then parenting children from the inside out. And if you look at it from both directions, this idea of, um, you know, we, I think that's something we're doing for the rest of our lives is how do we learn to nurture and parent ourselves yeah. so that we can validate ourselves. If you're a good parent, you know, I think, and that's to me the most important thing you could ever do in my book, uh, more important to me than anything I do is I want to be a good parent, honestly. Yeah. Um, Cause it's so vital to who I see myself as. Um, and I'm still a work in progress. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I, I agree. And I still fall short. Yeah, you know what I mean, John. It's it's the hardest thing. You know, it's yeah. it's uh, 
uh, nothing can impact you more than how your kids are feeling and doing and functioning. You, you know, you, the love, the sense of protection for them. Um, and so I tell myself that I really want to, um, I want them, you know, speaking of my kids or anyone, I, myself, is to really to validate myself more than I need external validation. I spend most of my life wanting other people to, to please other people, to people like me, uh, to want praise and recognition. So, so I could shore up who I thought I was. Yeah, and I spent absolutely. So I'm with you. So much. It was like such a big deal. Like what college I got into. Uh-huh. It was such a big deal. Uh, how I did on my test scores. It was such a big deal about, you know, who I was dating. It was such a big deal that, you know, how much money I might make. It was all these things are bullshit, you know, and I put a lot of effort into caring about such. But that's the story, the bullshit story that we're fed from a really young age. Yeah. That's the stuff that really matters. And, you know, to like, you know, to me, a lot of this gets back to values too. and, And I think that, you know, two of the biggest values in this younger generation right now, high school and early college are wealth and fame. Yeah. You know, I want to be a, I want to be a social media influencer. Yeah. And you know what we I one of the things that strikes me is that a far better path to happiness is self-transcendent goals. Yeah. So serving others, coaching youth athletics, supporting the political change, restoring the environment, something that's bigger than yourself is a far could better have, way to go with happiness you in your Sorry. In your front window, in your Yeah, yeah. Window. I was about you do you know Kohlberg's work on morality? I remember that. Get out of here. Like I, yeah, yeah that's who I studied in, in graduate school until my advisor who studied under Kohlberg said, you know, that that doesn't predict moral action at all. And I was like, oh, son of a bitch. Uh, well, you know, I liked it though, you know. And I love I, Kohlberg. Yeah. And so this idea for those who are listening, you know, um, is that there's this, there's this evolutionary scale. scale. Like imagine if you're learning uh, algebra one and then trig and then calculus, you know, and then whatever, you know, um, you know, you have to learn the basics before you go on to the higher level math, right? One would think. Um, and in terms of morality, it's not unlike that. That as our Piaget talked about, as our brains develop, we go from concrete operational states to maybe more abstract reasoning states. Our morality should match that. So we should go from more primitive forms of morality to more complex, abstract forms of morality. To go from ourselves to our immediate community to larger world. And then, you know, you might tie in Erickson's work and think about generativity versus stagnation, ego integrity versus despair, those two layers there too. If you tie all these models together, I think what it means for me is this idea that um, nothing is, not, what you, if, you talk, if you interview people at the end of their lives, and I'm fascinated by that. I love that. You know, what, what, what is, there's a, I'll try to tie not to get into too many subjects here, but one of the things that really, really hit my heart big time was Fierce Grace by Ram Das, the documentary about mm. his life after he got after yep. he had a stroke. Yeah, just saw that. And, a, and there's a painting of him in my room right now here, okay, from his house in Hawaii. Wow. That, you know, and, I, and I, I'm a huge, I'm hugely into him, you know, and I have a couple uh, paintings from his house here, you know, and, um, uh, and they're very meaningful for me. One psychedelic, it glows in the dark. It's really weird. If you creep my kids out, it actually glows in the dark. And they said, you got to get this out of the house. So <laughs> in my little back office, you see Ron Das glowing in this eerie way. <laughs> it's like, like he's tripping on some kind of... You know, yeah, like a you know, hallucinogen. 
So uh, they said, (laughs) they won't let it in the house. So it's in my little man cave, you know, where I'm talking to you right now. But, uh, but he talked about, you know, here's this powerful force, you know, uh, you know, be here and now, you know, revolutionary psychology, Harvard psychologist, great story, you know, made huge contribution. And um, to, to mindfulness too, and to yoga and other things. Um, and, um, and his message later in life was all about love. I saw his very last talk in Hawaii uh, when he uh, had another stroke. And the only thing he would do is this, he, he barely could speak, but he was so powerful. And he would point to his head, I'm pointing to my head right now, and he would then point to the heart and he would go, um, basically heart-centered awareness, you know. And it's, about, it's all about love, you know. And if you can validate yourself, you can learn how to unconditionally love yourself. And if you need other people to validate you, you can't unconditionally love yourself right and if we can't learn to do that how are we going to really validate and love others when we don't feel validated we work with a couple and one person is is so hungry for validation you can be pretty much assured that they can't validate their partner you can be pretty assured for whatever reasons they don't love themselves they can't show up lovingly in the way their partner wants and there's a hunger there that can't be fed and they can't feed the hungers of their partner. And so I think that that's the kind of stuff that, you know, I find fascinating. Yeah, it was interesting. I was just talking to a client this week and he, he said a line that stunned me. Like I had to pause and roll back and think about it. He said, I wasn't able to say I love myself until I was 49. And, and like, he literally couldn't say like, I love John yeah. in my head until he was almost half a century old. Yeah. And, and I think that's actually not a bad yardstick to just see, you know, what does that feel like to say, I love myself or I love John? You know, is there, you know, do you get this feeling of disgust or revulsion or aversion or does it feel comfortable? Does it feel like a glove? Yeah. Hopefully not the O.J. Simpson glove, but a different kind of glove. Well, that was really forced on, and that that was left out in the rain, apparently, and shrunk. But, you know, I'm talking about a new glove. <laughs> All right. Anyway, uh, but, you know, <laughs> sorry. I had to throw that out. A little bite improv. <laughs> but I think the, uh, you know, but I think the, uh, no, I think it is, it needs to be uh, like that. It has to feel like a natural fit. And. And I'm still working on it. Like, you know, when I lost my uh, motorcycle keys last week, um, <laughs> you know, uh, you know I, I don't know what it is, but I, when I, I'm usually good about not losing stuff. But then if I lose something, you know, my wife has this great karma. Like she'll lose things all the time and they always show up and she'll always find them. I lose something not as often, but it never comes back <laughs> and I never can find it again. You know, and I, when I lose things, I, I really do it well. I mean, like I really lose that. <laughs> You're an overachiever. And I, yeah. And I do think, you know, heaven is this place where you get reacquainted with all your lost objects from life, you know? That's oh, the, that'd be cool. Wouldn't that be right? That's what, you know, it's one of the parts of heaven that we might, if we believe in such things. But, but I went through this, you know, my old self-blaming, self-shaming, self-loathing moment, like, I can't believe I lost my only motorcycle keys. And now <clears throat> I'm going to have to take apart the ignition they can't make, there's no master key. 
it's going to cost me 800 bucks, you know, mm. to do this. I can't ride my bike there. I have to get a toad. And so I'm going on this long rant, you know, I'm feeling sorry for myself, feeling like a victim, like this is a real first world problem, you know, yep. right? But I can, you know, oh, oh, poor me, I can't, you know, find my keys. I'm such a, you know, oh, you know, <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous. And then, you know, I ranted at myself for, you know, too long. And then they realized that, oh, you know, I started to do the work that I want a client to do. And I started to do the inner work and go, who cares if you lost your keys? It's just a key, you know? So you can't ride your motorcycle. So what, you know, I mean, um, it's okay. You know, um, you've had a lot going on, you know, you've been very busy and it's just a sign that you need to slow down and you need to really um, not be as busy and you need to really be more grounded. So there's something off in the program and you've got to really go back and rework the program. And this is just a symptom. And um, fortunately, um, my wife was great. And she helped me find the master key to the motorcycle, you know, <clears throat> and she's amazing that way. Um, but I, she, she complimented, she goes, you didn't freak out like you usually do when you lose something. You actually only freaked out for like a half an hour and then you were okay. You know, <laughs> I said, I said well, and that's, that's progress. Good. That's progress, you know. So, you know, the point is that, and I can laugh about that now, and that's important. Mm-hmm. because it's ridiculous to get that upset with yourself for making a mistake. It's ridiculous to invalidate yourself for something so stupid, but we do. We invalidate ourselves with the most stupid things. Can I ask you a personal question and feel free to pass on this? Yeah. But I've been wondering about like those automatic negative thoughts. And, yeah. you know, as I talk about them with clients, I'm like, you know, we all have these Hall of Fame kind of classic negative thoughts. And I think at first you got to pay a little bit of close attention to kind of catch them because I think at first we're not even aware of them. But I think that there's themes of these thoughts that I, are universal for all of us. What are some of your, you know, over the years, what are some of your Hall of Fame negative thoughts that you've noticed? Um, I think, I think, you know, probably all or nothing thinking over generalization, you know, some of the classic CBT ones. Um, we wanted to go specific. Um, um, you know, I think, what about I think intelligence. That, uh, what, which part of that? Uh, well, do you like I'm, one of my classic ones is yeah. you're such a dumbass. And, oh. and it's a little more colorful than that, but you know, about myself or others or yeah, know. about myself and, and, oh. you know, internally, like if I make a mistake, yeah. what I, what I used to see is I would yeah. just shred myself with these insults. Oh yeah. Well, I, with the key thing, like I said, I can't believe I did that. I should know better. You know, I mean, what the hell am I thinking? You know, where, you know, I can kind of get into, you know, just terrorizing myself being, a, you know, yeah. you know, even now, you know, but, but the point is this, you know, if we look at it, progress, not perfection, right? That if we can recognize where, so in the IFS model, what are those voices? What those are, those are parts. And those parts are often exiles, familiar times in our life. They've been around a long time. What's their purpose? Well, one of the, the purpose is that, um, well, perfectionism is one of those things. I had a need to be perfect. Why did I need to be perfect? Because people expected a lot of me and I expected more than they expected. Well, and I didn't want to be embarrassed. Didn't want to be embarrassed. I wanted to look at it. That was mine. Why people like me. I wanted to be, you know, 
you know, I didn't want people to withdraw from me because I wasn't perfect enough. I wanted to be celebrated. I wanted to fit in. Yeah. I wanted to be a part of. And so, uh, you know, it connects to deeper things, you know. Um, and then you start to look at that and hold that differently. Like, okay, what would you say to a kid, your own kid? Well, it's okay. So what? You lost a key. You know, it's all right. It'll be okay. You know, we'll make it, we'll figure it out. And, um, you know, you have a lot on your mind. You've been really busy. You know, hey, I love you. Don't worry about it. Don't stress over it. It's okay. Don't, don't even think two minutes about it. And so we got to channel that part of ourselves that's nurturing. Yeah. And that's going to lead to that, to joy and to contentment. That, that feels a lot like uh, an exercise from Kristen Neff, where she kind of walks you through, you know, think of a behavior that you would like to change and where you normally try and change it by yelling at yourself with your inner critic. Yeah, right. And she walks you through the path of the inner critic. And then basically you get to the end and it's like, what's your inner critic trying to get you to do? Let's say you're trying to lose five pounds. Yeah. Well, the inner critic's trying to help you to lose that five pounds. It's just doing it in a way that is often abusive, self-abusive. Yes, yes. And then if you take the, the self-compassionate voice, which, you know, often we have to practice to even hear that one, but the self-compassionate voice is trying to get you to the exact same goal to lose five pounds. It's just doing it in a much kinder, more nurturing way. So yeah. They're both trying to get you to the same point. It's just two different pathways. Well, that's, that's a great way of uh, explaining it, John. You know, I, I, I think that there's many roads to Rome and, you know, one road goes through like, you know, Vietnam and the other road goes through, you know, <laughs> you know I'd rather go through, goes through the uh, Vietnam war. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. You know, you know, why not go through, you know, Maui and Kauai and, you know, Lanai or whatever, you know, yeah. so, so I would, I would rather go that route. Um, but we don't think about that choice, you know, and I think the self-compassion and kindness, you know, one of the things I also got really turned on to uh, that there's this great, I don't know if you've seen this, this British monk who talks about, uh, you know, he, he talks about kindfulness. Oh, and, cool. And it's this uh, great YouTube click. You can click it on. Um, and um, and he's hilarious. And uh, I think I saw him at Spirit Rock one time. Yeah, a long time ago. Um, and uh, anyway, so he, he, he goes into this. He thinks it's like the most important thing that it, it's hard to separate things because there's so much connectivity in all the things we're talking about. But how can we validate ourselves? How can we love ourselves? How can we take the path that you described versus the arduous path if we're not kind to ourselves? And if there's this inner critic or this self-abuser, this uh, self-critic who has been really hard on ourselves and is familiar to us, is automatic, you know, just kicks in automatically. You know, ultimately, we have to learn how to find kindfulness, you know, somewhere there to yeah. disconnect from that critic, that, that abuser, you know, that whatever that whatever formula to say it takes. And because um, I what I hate, you know, it's painful. I know you, when you sit with a client and they're being self-abusive and how they refer to themselves. Yeah. There's so many examples of that. Like, you know, um, exa- I remember once I did a talk in high school kids, I just volunteered to do it. And I was, I was just nerding out, reading like six or seven books about body dysmorphia. And I thought, you know, this might help some kids in high school. You know, these talks were sold out. I couldn't believe. I know you worked in the schools for a while. I, yeah. I was, people were lining up. And this is probably because it's free. I don't know. <laughs> but, but it was probably the topic. You know, it's about yeah. body shaming and how much self-hatred both men, boys and girls have about their bodies. 
at, in high school. And it's both sexes. Yeah. I think both for sexes. a while when I was young, I used to assume it was mostly female. And then oh. I was like, oh, no. And, and I think it's because of that, you know, negativity bias where we overfocus on the 5% of our bodies that we hate the most or that we're most yeah. embarrassed by. Exactly. You hear, you hear supermodels who hate the way they look, yeah. you know, or bodybuilders who can never get big enough, take enough steroids. Well, I remember there was a, a study done with um, professional soccer players in England. And they found that something crazy, like 80% of them were dissatisfied with how their body looked because they thought they should be more muscular. Yeah. And yet they were elite athletes. Yes. And that's this, this is the, you know, the funhouse mirror in which we see ourselves, you know? Yeah. If we can't validate ourselves, we can't love ourselves. We're not kind, you know? Uh, we're not going to, and we can't, and during normal times, we can't do this. How are we going to do it during harder times like plagues, stressful events? And the other point of the book, by the way, just to say this, is that I don't think this is it for plagues, you know, by the way, not that I'm a Notre Dame is here, yeah. but we've had them forever, you know, and yeah. they're not going away and we're going to have other not so good times. I mean, if you, could you have predicted all the crazy crap that's happened the last three years? I mean, come on, you know, it's mm -hmm. crazy what's happened the last three years, you know, you know, uh, the January 6th stuff, you know, riding, you know, you know, I mean, who would have imagined it, right? So, uh, you know, People hate the FBI. People hate cops. People want to, you know, you know the, the number of mass shootings we've had. You can't even keep track of them, you know. No. People, you know, uh, so it's it's you could lose yourself trying to in the news and doom scrolling all these things, right? And so, what really? Uh, so these things aren't going away. You know, we're gonna unless you know major things happen with policy and, and we get we've had enough. We're, we're a country that is what we are. You know, we're going to have shootings. We're going to want, want to, we're going to want freedom to have our guns. We're going to want to have, you know, um, we're going to have divisiveness. You know, we're, we're going to, this isn't going away. Okay. I wish it yeah. were. I, I like it to go away. I hope it goes away and I hope we heal. I hope we become united. I love that. I hope we become, I hope we treat each other as united versus the other. Yeah. And we see our humanity in each other. Um, and we don't try to win, you know, in the ways that cause other people to, we have to win at the expense of other people. And I hope this shifts. I hope we have this Coley Kohlberg, a higher level of morality, consciousness. And it's interesting right now, uh, people want more civility. Most people want more kindness. Most people want to stop the bickering. They're sick of it. They want to have the contentment. They've had enough. And I think that there's an inflection point for our country where people want peace, they want equanimity, they want, they want something else. They want something bigger than this. They realize how small-minded this stuff is. And so I'm hoping, you know, in some small way that I catalyze a little bit of that shift now for people on, on, a, on some level so that we can, you know, be more, uh, find our morality and our humanity uh, toward each other. And yeah, so. Yeah. And I think that's a great goal to find ways that we're similar to tap into curiosity and see if we can have conversations with people that we don't agree with and yeah. be curious about what are their values and how do yeah. their values speak to what they believe rather than just label them as other asshole, you know, Republican, Democrat, whatever it is, liberal, no. conservative, MAGA. Or the, and, you know, you're stupid if you don't see things the way I see. Yeah, we, we got to get past the labels and yeah. and be a little bit more curious about the humanity of of people in general. Uh, 
So yeah. that, that's a good note to, to bring it to a close on. Let me yep. ask you just in closing, is there anything that I didn't ask you that I should have? Uh, no, you asked me plenty, John. (laughs) 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 No, you're, you're, you're great. I, you know, I can't think of anything I would have asked me that you didn't ask me, but I really want to, I mean that, but I want to thank you so much for, um, giving me a little platform here to, uh, bend the ear of the listeners and, uh, thanks for your smart questions and, um, and keep doing what you're doing. You're doing really important work here. You found a niche here that is so vital. Um, you know, not just for men, but for everyone. But I really hope you know, I've turned people on your podcast because I think it's been so valuable. And you know, you're doing really important work out there. So keep going, brother. Well, thank you very much, and right back at you. And thank you very much for spending some time with me to come on the po- the podcast and talk about finding joy during the play. Well, let's keep working on it together. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's it for this episode of The Evolved Caveman. If you like this episode, feel free to rate, review, and share with your friends and loved ones. If you didn't like it, you don't have to do a damn thing. Thank you very much. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. If you like what you've heard, support us by subscribing, leaving reviews, and sharing the podcast with friends and colleagues. For the latest, most powerful tools to connect with like-minded men, join the Facebook group at The Evolved Caveman. Follow Dr. John on Instagram at The Evolved Caveman, all one word, or join the email list by visiting guidetoself.com. 